Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. Well, John, I think we have an interesting show lined up for today. You know, I mean, something that happened a couple weeks ago here that uh, kind of went unnoticed in the local media. Um, is we had a major company go bankrupt. Westinghouse went bankrupt, and that has some big implications for some local employers around here. Um, yeah. Scanna is one of them. It really does. It also gives us some lessons in investing, some yes, things to do and some things not to do. It does. It kind of brings a new light to diversification, doesn't it? So it does. We're going to talk about that, dig into it, and kind of talk about what it means for the nuclear industry, which they were heavily involved in, and also what it means for uh, for your investments and uh, kind of down the road. So very interesting topic. And then we have another good story, right? Yeah, we do. We're going to look at um, the ten top ten investing lessons that we've seen uh, for the century so far. So wow. if you look back, you know, the last 17 years, um, it's uh, it's been interesting with the tech bubble, and then you had the um, the financial crisis back in two thousand and eight, and there's some tenets Steve, that that run run true in in the last uh, two decades, but it also really is a long term um, you know look at what you should and what you shouldn't do. So we're going to dive into ten of those um, after the Westinghouse story. Yeah, that that will be good. That's some very meaningful um, tips that we can plug into our future uh future investing. investing yep exactly okay um by the way i'm steve marbert a certified financial planner and a dave ramsey smart investor pro with over 20 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice and i'm john travis i'm also a dave ramsey smart investor pro and uh, have an mba in finance and i've been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And we are excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly podcast show. Um, we're up every Friday afternoon, um, and you can catch us on our, our website, right? Yeah, go to website, moneymd.net. We have a link on the right-hand corner that has the uh, podcast uh, link, and you can go listen to our podcast. We have them categorized by different topics, and um, you can listen from you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, a couple months ago. So we keep uh, you know, some history out there as well. Yeah, exactly. Also, we'd love to have your questions, so feel free to email us. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net, or you can link to us on our website, moneymd.net. Well, um, John, you know, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. This comes from the Tax Foundation, and, uh, you know, we just got through through with tax season. I'm sure everybody's happy about you know, getting through that milestone. But, yeah, um, you kidding. know, there's some talk about revamping or redoing, having tax reform. And, uh, man, I tell you, when you look at this financial fact, it's amazing. The, the tax code currently has 10 million words buried in there. Wow. And that's, that's a, a lot. That, it really is. And to put that in perspective, you know, if you're an average uh, reading individual, 300 words a minute, if you read nonstop day and night for 23 days, you would be able to get through that. So it is just an enormous, I mean, think about that 23 days, 24 hours a day reading nonstop, you could read the whole tax code. It is very complex. Wow. That's uh yeah, it'd take more than an Evelyn Wood speed reading course to yes, get through it would. that. And uh, that's our government hard at work for us, you know, 23 million words. Oh, 10, 10 million 10 words. 10 million words. 10 million words. Yeah, that's... Three days to read it. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And that's one reason why we got to fix our tax code yeah, and uh, a, lot of other, a lot of other government regulations that are just, you know, overburdensome and nobody even knows what they say because there's 
so many things in there that are buried in there. Um, so um, so here's here's hoping they'll they'll make some changes. Exactly. Interesting fact of the week, though. Okay, and that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is the Westinghouse bankruptcy and your investments. Um, this is based on an article out of the Christian Science Monitor by Eileen Powell. And, yeah, I mean, as we mentioned, John, I mean, one of our biggest players in the nuclear power game has taken a step back and declared bankruptcy. And that's raising some questions about kind of the future of nuclear power in the United States and and the local employers like Scana and Southern Company that have been involved in um, uh, Westinghouse with Mm -hmm. their nuclear power plants they're building, the new reactors that are being built. But yeah, a couple weeks ago, Westinghouse Electric, which is Toshiba's nuclear unit, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And as part of that bankruptcy restructuring, the company plans to stop installing reactors in order to focus on maintenance and design. And that decision does throw in the doubt, you know, the future of the four reactors that are under construction um, here locally uh, for us, really. Um, and clearly, it's a bad sign for kind of the resurgence of nuclear power here in the U.S. that was just getting underway in the last few years. Yeah, that's right. For some, the challenges are, are really a sign of a systematic problem that mean the nuclear power generation, you know, may, might should be phased out due to the rising cost considerations and, and the emergence of some of the renewable energy that you hear a lot about. Um, you know, others see the, the bankruptcy filing as another short-term challenge for the industry, but they predict the, the nuclear resurgence will continue. And um, this gentleman um, out of the uh, engineering lab in Texas basically says the, uh, the Westinghouse bankruptcy is certainly a, a setback, but they expect it just to be a temporary setback. So he says the United States and the world need nuclear power to meet the global growth and demand for electricity. So uh, I don't know. That's, that's a big deal. It really is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, Westinghouse is responsible for the technology that's used in about half of the world's nuclear power plants. And when Toshiba purchased them for $5.4 billion back um, over 10 years ago, it expected Westinghouse to be kind of a lucrative sideline to its commercial electronic business. But delays on the four nuclear reactors it was constructing here in the U.S., combined with the increased regulation after the Fukushima nuclear accident back in 2011 and that uh, that earthquake and tsunami mm-hmm. uh, over in Japan, that forced uh, changes to reactor design and left the company in some deep red ink. Um, so, you know, Westinghouse uh, isn't the only struggling nuclear player. I mean, General Electric's also scaled back its nuclear development while France's Arivia is restructuring, according to the New York Times. Um, So critics have long been concerned about the risk associated with nuclear power, of course, um, and chiefly the potential for accidents and the production of radioactive waste. But uh, Westinghouse's bankruptcy kind of reinforces that cost is also a big concern and could ultimately price it out of the market once again like it did back in the 80s. Um, You know, Westinghouse's universal design and licensing were kind of long held up as the answer to the out-of-control cost in government regulation for nuclear power. I mean, however, the cost and delays are still uh, proving to be a significant issue. 
in yeah. this industry. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, this this is uh, you know a fundamental challenge that the nuclear power has faced really for the last several decades, as nuclear power construction has been unable to compete economically in the uh, electric electricity marketplace. And the construction cost overruns and the time delays that have plagued the the Westinghouse projects they're not unique in the U.S. We just talked about uh, Arivia uh, from France, and right. you know some observers suggest that it's time for the U.S. to focus its attention on renewable energy sources. Um, you know, looking at wind and solar, but others take a more optimistic view of the nuclear energy's long long term potential, saying the current challenges can and will be addressed. So we'll see. I mean, I think the renewable energy is going to be much cheaper. Down the road, it sure seems like it. Yeah, I mean, so anyway, that may start, though, with strengthening the domestic industry. You know, before Westinghouse signed on to the four nuclear projects back in 2008, there were no new nuclear plants that were being built here in the U.S. since the Three Mile Island accident back in 79. And Westinghouse's contractors lacked the expertise to to be larger responsible and that seems to be largely responsible for a lot of the cost delays. I mean, it was clear early on that the U.S. had lost a lot of the skilled workforce that was needed to build nuclear power plants. And, um, you know, they're just saying that lack of experience on all sides was certainly a factor. And there were many issues that they had to work themselves out. And smaller reactors may provide an alternative to these traditional large-scale projects like this that, have kind of uh, run into trouble with cost and delays. but And while the upfront cost of nuclear installations may still uh, concern energy companies, um, you know, they say, you know, down the road, it, it still it still looks more appealing to a lot of a lot of folks in that industry and in the, uh, you know, energy sector. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in the short term, though, low cost of natural gas in the United States and, and subsidized solar and wind create an energy market where nuclear doesn't shine quite as well as it should. And it's expected that low cost of natural gas and solar and wind subsidies are are not long-term features of the market. But, of course, you know, you know people thought oil drilling was on its way out <laughs> 10 years ago yet, yeah, too. Yeah, right. Until fracking and horizontal drilling came of age. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, certainly a lot of changes in that industry. And, you know, so what are some of the lessons from this bankruptcy for your, your own personal investments? I mean, first, huge companies like Westinghouse, they do go bankrupt. So diversification, once again, proves to be the prescription of the day for your investments. And after all, I mean, how could we forget, go back to 2008 and all of the huge companies that got into trouble, yeah, it's less than 10 years ago. I mean, there were large banks and insurance companies, uh, the automotive companies, they were crushed by the sudden drop in the economy. And, you know, there's really, there's simply no one company that can keep you safe from insolvency. So if you think about even the government, some of the government agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, that had the government backing, I mean, they got killed back in 2008. Yep. So, I mean, the fact is any company like Westinghouse and T- uh, Toshiba, um, I see people loading up on Procter & Gamble and these yeah. very, quote, safe companies. I mean, they're vulnerable to risk um, from one business, uh, one company. You know, it, there's factors outside their control sometimes that, that can take them down. So, you know, you look at Scanna and Southern Company, and um, they're also affected, obviously, by when one of the major, major contractors goes down as well. So diversify. Don't get caught. I, I, I've seen people invest everything in one company, and that is just not – that's not wise. Yeah, time. And again, we keep preaching this story, you know, over the years of 
you know, don't invest all your money in your employer's stock. I mm -hmm. mean, there's a lot of risk there, you know, on top of the risk of your job. And, um, you know, here's just another case in point where, you know, two companies that a lot of people, you know, have a lot of stock in here locally um, are, 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 you know, facing some headwinds with this bankruptcy with Westinghouse. Yeah, the other S lesson learned, though, um, is that industries are also highly vulnerable to changing world, to a changing world, and can, can be affected in very unpredictable ways. You know, it looked as though nuclear power was finally kind of regaining its sea legs, and then along comes, you know, one big wave that can sink it for years to come. Of course, I mean, this could only be a minor setback, but then again, I mean, no one knows where all the dominoes will fall in this. And you need to be diversified throughout many industries, many countries, and regions, you know, with your investments. Hopefully nuclear will get back on the right track and a new contractor will pick up where they left off. However, I mean, solar power and other renewables may be the future waves that could sink the nuclear energy ship. So don't put all your eggs in one basket there. And while, you know, all these concerns loom large for nuclear power given Westinghouse's bankruptcy, nuclear energy may be the United States' best hope for curbing carbon emissions. You know, if the U.S. gets serious about reducing emissions, then you've you got to have massive investments in dozens of nuclear plants, according to some environmental proponents. Um, but they say, you know, if you look at all the countries that have brought low-carbon electricity generation online fast, They've all done it with nuclear. So hopefully this will prove to only be a small hiccup in the resurgence for nuclear power, but only time will tell. And meanwhile, you know, we would recommend you stay well diversified with your investments and, you know, transition away from large holding of local favorites like Scana and Southern Company. You know, I mean, no one knows how this setback for nuclear will unfold, but in today's world, like always, you would be well served to include thousands of companies in your investment portfolio in many industries well beyond energy. Mm -hmm. yep. So uh, interesting story, though, and uh, sad to hear that yeah, you know, really. such a big company, which I used to work for one time. Did you? Um, Westinghouse, yeah, when they were back out at Savannah River site. So it's uh, sad to see them, you know, go through a bankruptcy, but hopefully they'll emerge stronger and, you know, still – still uh, contributing to that industry. Okay, well, that leads us up to our uh, question. question of the week. Yeah, this is uh, has to do with uh, Roth IRAs, and the question is, is, what is a backdoor Roth IRA? And so there are income limits. Um, if you're single, it's, uh, you know, 130000 roughly. If you're you're married, it's, uh, you know, one hundred and eighty to 190000 roughly. If you make over that, then you can't put money into a Roth. However, you can... Um, uh, convert IRA accounts and put that money into a Roth account. That's what they're talking about, backdoor um, Roths. Right. And there are no income limits on that. There used to be. There used to be 100000 If you right. made over 100000 right. you couldn't do that. But and today, the way the tax code reads is you can convert any amount uh, regardless of what your income is. And you can also roll after-tax money out of your retirement plan in directly into a Roth IRA. That's right. That's right. And that's a backdoor way to get a lot of money in. A lot of people have a 401k and they can contribute a ton of money above their um, their eighteen thousand if they're under fifty or twenty four thousand if you're over fifty limit uh, and do it after tax and then roll it right out into a Roth IRA. So great opportunity to get into a backdoor Roth yep, IRA. I like right. it. 
I like it. Okay, that leads us up to our next topic here, and that is the 10 investing lessons of the century. Yes. I like it, John. Well, we're only 17 years old. I know, century, but I, I know. I, I but like it still. Good. It's Good been lesson. a pretty busy century, hasn't it? It's been busy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no kidding, man. I mean, I mean, it's certainly been a wild ride. I, there's a graph in front of me that I'm looking at, and it you know, starts off with 99, and it was <clears throat> you know pretty high then, and dropped down in the tech bubble. We had 9-11 as well. And uh, again, then it went back up again for five or six years, and then we had the the financial, uh, the you know, the Great Recession, and um, so it's been really, really busy. And and we can all benefit by learning from our investing mistakes thus far, and you know, tweaking the strategy going forward. So here are ten lessons that we can look at um, that we can make you know decisions on. And it's not going to play out perfectly going forward, but uh, one of the things, one of the takeaways is. The stocks do have risk. Um, now, what, what we do is we do see uh, over time them going up. But uh, if you look back at the 2002 and the 2008 drops, I mean, they were 50% drops. They were they were not insignificant. So you got to make sure um, <clears throat> that you have the right mix in the stocks. And, and so we've seen, you know, over the last, you know, year or so, we've had clients that, um, you know, want to be more aggressive than what they have historically, and and um, you know you, you you can chalk this up to being a a bull, um, but you know you got to be very very careful that you have the right mix of bonds and stocks, because um, I you know you just don't know what's going to happen, and and stocks can go through periods of time where it, where it does not turn out well during that time frame. But long term, I mean again we're believers in the long term, but you just got to know that there can be short periods that stocks drop significantly. Yeah, that's right. Another one here, John, is that U.S. stocks don't give enough international exposure. Um, And that is very true. I mean, we hear from many investors, you know, over time that that they say that, you know, investors don't need international stocks. You know, two points that are frequently made is that, well, you know, almost half of the revenues from the S&P 500 come from international sales. And, you know, that there's a high correlation between U.S. and international stocks. And, and yes, I mean, international stocks trounced U.S. stocks in the first half of this 17-year period and badly underperformed in the second half. So, you know, you can't predict that. Um, you don't know when that's going to turn. And, um, you know, the fact is they, they don't do the same thing at the same time. So that's the, po- that's the whole point behind diversification is you have two types of assets that don't follow one another. And, you know, there, there are going to be divergences between U.S. and international stocks at different times. It's unpredictable. Um, you know, the high correlation is only when markets are down. Mm-hmm. Markets tend to be highly correlated when they're down, but when they're doing well, that they tend to diverge quite a bit. So regardless of whether the international stocks outperform U.S. stocks this year or just the opposite, our advice is to always own the entire world that's right be diversified worldwide that's right that's right that's a good one number three here on the list is stocks for the long run can can be longer than clients can wait i mean if you look at the 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 2000 to 2009 stretch um you know the s&p 500 made basically zero made nothing and bonds did significantly better so there are periods of time that bonds will outperform stocks so it's frustrating when you go through a, a, a one, two, three, or ten-year period where where markets aren't behaving. But if you can stay invested, put money in. Um, historically, that's worked out. You know, in 2009, um, the last you know several years have done very, very well. But there are periods of time that it does it doesn't feel like the stocks are moving. But you got to be patient. You know, look at your time horizon and make sure your allocation kind of fits that time horizon. 
Yeah, that's right. That's a good one. And the next one here is break the addiction to prediction. Mm -hmm. um, and that is so true. I mean, so far in the 21st century, we've had two huge stock plunges, nearly 50% or more. So we had two major, major bear markets. You know, and it's worth mentioning that few forecasters saw these plunges coming. You know, while there were a couple people out there like, you know, Gary Schilling, who correctly called the 2008 crash. I mean, both real estate and stocks. I mean, he missed just as badly in 2009 when he didn't call the bottom. You know, and Harry Dent's 2009 bestseller, The Great Depression Ahead, came just about in time to help readers lose out on the great stock market, bull market, and recovery. <laughs> so yep. he didn't want to follow any, either one of those two uh, advices that came from there. And, you know, even economists badly flunked the interest rate forecast. They constantly predicted rising rates while the market decided otherwise until here just recently. You know, such bad calls aren't new to this century. Um, you know, we try to help our clients break the addiction to the prediction by reminding them that, you know, the market has already priced in all the known information that can be forecast for the future. So don't try to predict the future with the stock market. Yeah, that's right. Number five here on the list is don't bail on bonds. This is a good one. We're hearing a lot of conversation about this. High-quality bonds, they really act as a shock absorber, um, you know, to give you a chance to rebalance your portfolio, take some income off of it as well. Uh, but despite the evidence that rebalancing works, it's not always easy. I mean, who could argue with the benefits of, of buying stocks when they're on sale? But, you know, few had the um, intestinal fortitude to buy buy stocks in 2ousand2 and especially in 2008. We did. We have a balance rebalancing process That's that right. happens quarterly and it happens when the markets are up and down. And so, you know, you got to stick to your asset allocation, do some rebalancing. Um, but in order to do rebalancing, you got to have some high-quality bonds. I mean, according to Morningstar, the average taxable bond fund lost nearly 8% in 2008. Wow, that's and, right. And some lost more than 20%. So not all bond funds are created equal. You know, if you have high-quality bond funds like that are backed by the U.S. government, which is the ones that we own, um, this fund, you know, gained like 5% in 2008. So instead of losing money on something that's conservative, you're actually gaining money. So make sure you have some bonds in your portfolio. Yeah, that's a good one. Next one here is market plunges are not all alike. You know, what worked in 2000 to 2002 um, failed miserably in 2008 to 2009 during that market plunge. So, you know, in the first crash of the century... Small cap stocks outperformed the rest of the market, and precious metals, mining stocks, and REITs did quite well. And so a lot of advisors, they built portfolios heavily weighted in those asset classes um, that did best during those three years. And then they, they only saw them to do very poorly during the next mm -hmm. market crash. You know, Monte Carlo simulations based on recent past that assumed those asset classes would do well in the next market downturn proved to be wrong. Um, the problem is that there's no two crashes alike. I mean, for instance, in 2008 to 2009, you know, the value stocks were, were heavily weighted in financials, real estate. Those got slaughtered. Even precious metals and mining stocks got hammered and did not recover as fast as financials and real estate. 
So the point here is don't build your portfolio based on what worked in one single market. You need to diversify across a lot of different markets mm-hmm. and don't try to time it at all. Yeah, and one of the things that, that we've seen is is a lot of people started diversifying into alternatives. Um, you know, these are um, you know market neutral funds, managed futures, long short funds, inverse funds, hedge funds. Um, you know, after the market plunge, I mean, these became these assets became the craze and. Um, you know, a lot of these have negative and low correlations with the stock market, but they also had low and, and uh, you know, and zero returns. So, yeah. um, you know, looking at always looking at different ways to invest, you got to be careful. Um, you know, you could take half your portfolio and, and gamble in Las Vegas and it wouldn't be correlated to stocks either, but it doesn't mean it's a smart thing to do. So some of these alternative products that are out there, they're, they're junk is what they are. And we see those coming exactly through on right. some things that we're looking at now from some of our competitors. So you got to be careful with what you invest in. Exactly. That's a good one. And then the next one here is narrow bets have worse market timing. Yeah, investors are predictably irrational. You know, if stocks plunge, they get greedy and they buy. If they, you know, plunge, fear will rule the day and they'll sell. Um, you know, so many studies such as this one by Morningstar, estimate that the impact on investors by comparing dollar-weighted returns to the geothermic, geometric returns of funds, um, you know, they just, they just show that it, it just doesn't work. I mean, and to be fair, this even happens with the very broad-based index funds in the illustration in the beginning of, um, of this. I mean, by, the work by Vanguard shows that the narrower the fund the more investors show bad timing. So what we tell clients is the broader is better. Um, you want to be well diversified, spread out in a lot of different industries, and you want to have as low volatility as possible, and you get that by diversification. Yeah, that's right. And number nine here on the list, Steve, is that, that costs matter. I mean, making sure that you have good good mutual funds um, that are that are low cost is, is important. Um, indexing is very popular. Uh, ETFs are out there as well. So make sure you understand your costs. And it's not just the expense ratio. We also see a lot of cost in, in the turnover of a mutual fund if you have one that's being traded a lot. So you got to make sure you look at cost and um, make sure that's um, if you do have cost in the portfolio, like uh, if you're working with an advisor, either a broker or, or a financial advisor, that they're adding value to your situation through the planning, tax planning, things like that associated with it. So the last one here on the list is investing based on the recent past is a mistake. And it seems like a lot of people keep making this one, Steve. I mean, yep. over the five-year period ending in 2007, U.S. stocks doubled while international stocks tripled. And, um, you know, there was a lot of people that, that said, hey, international stocks are always going to outperform the U.S. And a year later, um, you know, when we stood on the, um, the edge of the Great Recession, those same people said, hey, no cash is king now. So, um, you know, we're all emotional beings. We're not particularly efficient learners. And uh, we actually regularly make uh, the same mistakes. So you got to look at these 10 lessons um, you know, there, some of those, some of these are consistent over time. Um, we usually recommend that you, that you have a plan, be diversified, don't make rash decisions. If you're scared about the market, go sit down and talk with someone that you trust, um, and to help you make those decisions. Cause this is a very, a very emotional process. Yeah, that's right. All right. Great topic. And that leads up to our final thing. And that is the prescription of the week. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so Sarah Jane is actually going to going to do the uh, video so go check out our facebook 
um, post. Um, she's going to do a, a pretty good imitation of this. But um, uh, Dave Ramsey has something for um, personalities, nerds and free spirits. Nerds enjoy numbers and the budgeting process, and free spirits like to spend. <laughs> and not so much on the, the nerd standpoint. So, you know, I guess the, the prescription would be is, is identify where you fall. And then if you're a nerd, you know, invite your spouse on a budget date. Go to a local coffee shop. Crunch the numbers. Make sure your free spirit is participating in that and actually shows up, right? And if you're a free spirit, you know you've got to change some numbers. You got to be involved in the process. Um, you know it's it's very evident when a couple walks in. I can usually tell the nerd and the free spirit very very easily. Um, but check out our Facebook post. Uh, Sarah Jane's going to give a pretty good rendition on this uh, coming up. Yeah, and you'll see if you're a nerd or a free spirit. That's right. Yeah, apparently you want to be the nerd here. <laughs> I like it. Okay, well, this brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Do tune in next week on Money MD to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706 739 0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. Material in this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is for customer service only and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard & Associates, a registered investment advisor.